So hi, and welcome to Clergy and Collars Getting Coffee. Today, my guest is the Dr. Scott Hadley, uh, who is a professor at Pittsburgh Seminary, of a professor of uh, world mission and evangelism. Uh, he formerly served as a director of education in Forge Canada in Surrey, British Canada and Surrey in British Columbia, where he worked to develop curriculum for the formation of missional leaders and hubs across Canada. He also serves as a teaching pastor at Southside Community Church, which is a multi-site church in Vancouver metro area where he organized uh, mission-based uh, communities. He received his BA in youth ministry and communications from Bethel University, an MDiv from Regent College, and a PhD with distinction in congregational mission and leadership from Luther Seminary. So welcome, Dr. Hagley. Nice to have you. Thanks, Leah. It's good to be with you. So I know you because I am one of your students in your cohort at uh, Pittsburgh. And so um, we met, but for people who don't live in this world of either church and or mission, what is a missional community? A missional community. Uh, I mean, in some ways, a missional community is simply um, sh a shorthand way of talking about the vocation and identity of the church, I would say. Um, you know, so this idea that uh, the church um, is some is a, a um, community created um, by God for the sake of participating in what God is doing in the world. And so um, in Christian theology, mission has been a shorthand way of talking about what God is up to in the world. Um, now it's also become shorthand for different kinds of coercive activities and um, sometimes entanglements with colonial governments and all these kinds of things. But um, in its simplest sense, mission is a way of talking about the, the sending activity of God um, and the ways in which God is drawing God's creation into communion with um, God. And, um, and so the church, you know, exists as a community um, uh, to witness to that as an example of this, but also continuing in this kind of work. And so um, the problem is, is that we often think of church as uh, a building or a only a worship gathering on a Sunday morning or a kind of family unit that sort of protects a cherished way of life. Um, so we sometimes have to change language to say things like missional communities to describe something that's maybe a little bit more mobile, um, a little bit more focused on um, being a good neighbor and um, seeking to participate in the good things that might be happening in a, in a neighborhood rather than only sort of gathering people kind of behind closed doors or something. So I think the language of missional communities is kind of getting getting at that. Yeah. And you know, one of my favorite, I will, I'm up for it anytime is actually drinking coffee with people and talking about theology. I know you are quite a coffee drinker yourself. Um, and you, you're very particular. I think about your beans, you bring them into, to work with you. Like you're, you don't want that. What is I'll say typical church coffee. Is that, has that always been, um, a, a love of or an interest of yours is like if you're like if I'm gonna drink this stuff it's gonna be good yeah I mean that's quite a transition in questions um I know well yeah Michelle you know, you've talked to me coffee. before I, mean, I, I can see the, I can see the thread um <laughs> you know uh I don't know where it started to be honest um you know I was in college in the uh mid 90s when um, in the Midwest. So, you know, we weren't on the front edge of this kind of coffee culture thing happening in the US. We were a little behind. Yep. Um, but that's sort of when I started going, you know, just looking for places to study and going to like local coffee shops and kind of getting into that uh, culture, enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying getting off campus. Um, drinking coffee helped me read you know, stay invested in my reading longer, you know, it was a, a drug of choice for that. Uh -huh. um, 
so I think, I mean, that was sort of the gateway to it. And, and I started drinking just plain coffee because I couldn't afford expensive drinks with lots of sugary, you know, whatever in it. And, um, you know, so if you're just drinking it plain, you start like noticing things and anyway, so that, that's been a long, and then living in Vancouver obviously really helped then becoming more interested in questions around like fair trade coffee, thinking about how it's sourced, um, how it's roasted, uh, you know, so it, it's been, you know, just a slippery slope, you could say. (laughs) No, I, I mean, I, well, I love it. We had, um, we had a local roaster who got into it and we had our, our church coffee hours are actually usually, you know, adult, really adult education hours. There are kids who come, but primarily it's just the adults. And we have, sometimes we invite outside people and there was a a new roaster in town in our community. And he had been military career and then retired and started doing this. And so he came and gave a presentation on how the beans are roasted and where he gets them from and why he doesn't do flavored beans and like all these sort of things like but it was it was fascinating because i think too often and i guess that's also what the missional community or what you're in your consulting work you're asking churches to do is to think intentionally about how we make our decisions and mm-hmm. being more aware of our impact, our footprints, our, you know, what we're putting out, but what we're also um, taking in. So I I could see how, you know, a a desire for more fair trade coffee and, and, you know, all of that would co would walk a parallel line to the ministry and the work you're doing. Cause I imagine it wasn't just coffee that changed in that way for you. It was like a lot of things all at once. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think um, one of my research interests for a long time now has been thinking about um, the sort of religious dimensions of capitalism um, and how, how our kind of the material dimensions of our, you know, social and political life um, shape us, right. That participating in the economy and in all the different forms that that, that this economy takes that, you know, the, the market really provides it is really one of the only mediators that we have um, between us and our neighbor. Right? right. And so as we participate in this market economy and all that, that means um, that shapes us in particular ways that some ways that we might not, if we think about it long enough, might be not necessarily good Christian formation. Um, and you know, it's a long way of saying that one of the things that I think sort of capitalist production does and um, is that the the um, processes that produce the things that we buy are obscured from the price and from the act of purchasing. And so it becomes really difficult to know whether who is harmed or how they're harmed, you know, in the process to, buying some, you know, to producing yeah. something or bringing it to market. Um, makes it difficult for us to make good choices as consumers, like in terms of climate change or um, exploitation of workers or, you know, um, damaging of like local cultures or, you know, whatever, right? So, yeah. um, you know, so I think the coffee thing has been one way to, to it's been a process for me partially of just becoming more aware of of like supply chains and how my choices impact that and better and worse ways of participating in those um and yeah and there are you know you can kind of play that out in terms of thinking about housing and thinking about how i live in my neighborhood and you know and i think part of like back to the missional community part of i think um helping churches to kind of be better participants or more attentive participants in God's mission means, you know, creating room in churches for these kinds of conversations, recognizing that there's really no pure place to stand. It's not like we can extract ourselves from an exploitative um, economy. Right. Um, But, but we can um, 
the you know agents for change, um, helping cultivate room for a more just and trustworthy world. And I do think that's what we're called to do. Yeah, it's it's interesting there. I have definitely had moments in my own like reading and discernment process of being like, forget this, I'm chucking it all. I'm just going to go off the grid entirely. I'm just going to take my family. We're just going to go and run and we're just going to hide out and live off of whatever we can produce and all that kind of stuff. And and then I also realized, well, <laughs> that that misses all the communal aspects of the biblical <laughs> stories and the call process as well. Like you can't just do that. But it, you know, when I sort of wake up, because some of those things they're they're scary to me. Like I get terrified at like thinking about the phone that I used was probably made with ch child labor. Like mm -hmm. if I really spend time in in my head and thinking about that, it it can get very um, easy to kind of just want to distance myself from it entirely. And at the same time, it's not going to actually eradicate the issue. But staying in conversation with people and at least uh, creating space for critical thought to take place might might actually affect more reasonable uh, change. And, you know, you do in in addition to the work you do in the classroom, uh, I mean, I said the consulting as though that's all past tense, but you consult uh, with churches now. I, I At least a while ago, you were doing that work in like the Ohio area a bit. Are you still um, doing that sort of consulting work? And is that a lot of like creating space so that people can discern how to be the church in their particular context? Yeah, we, um, I, I've, I've done consulting work with uh, organization um, Church Innovations uh, Institute for a lot of years. Um, and then more recently, um, have by just through the seminary, through connections with the seminary, have um, worked with different churches and denominations that, you know, variety, in a variety of different ways. Um, so it really depends on the setting as to what what it is that I'm trying to do. But largely, um, you know, it's it's about trying to help congregations develop capacity um, for discernment and experimentation. Um, you know, I think a lot of times churches will turn toward a consultant or a program because we are getting smaller, we're getting older. Mm -hmm. um, if we don't attract young people, you know, we, we can see our expiry date, you know, approaching. Um, and, it, you know, and I think that anxiety often leads to this kind of work, but it's actually not a helpful anxiety. Um, yeah. And it gets in the way of, of um, churches doing the work that churches are supposed to do. Um, and, and so, you know, there's usually sometimes the process is really just helping congregations to sort of like let go of this dream of self-perpetuation into perpetuity, <laughs> right? Um, that uh, congregations are organisms. Um, yeah. th they are not necessarily meant to live forever. The, the death of a congregation is not the death of the church. Yeah. Um, and so um, there are, and there are life cycles in churches or in congregations. Um, so, but just letting go of that dream that will live forever is not the same thing as admitting that, okay, we're going to die or whatever, you know, I, but I think letting go of that dream then allows a congregation to start doing the kind of open-ended experimentation um, and active discernment that I think is required to um, learn how to dream again, to imagine a new future for the congregation, to let cherished programs at times, you know, go mm -hmm. um, so that they can embrace something new. Um, and, um, you know, and so I think like the work that that takes, I think just really changes based on setting. But right now, my colleague Karen Rohr and I, so Karen Rohr is the director of the Center for Adaptive and Innovative Ministry at the seminary. And um, 
which I work really closely with. We have a graduate certificate program that is a one-year, 15-month um, um, program for um, pastors, church leaders, lay leaders, you know, helping them kind of discern new ways of doing ministry, planting new churches, things like that. But then we also do some um, contract work with churches as well. And so Karen and I are um, working with a group of congregations in Akron, Ohio, or kind of just actually October, we're finishing up our first year and then going to kind of discern next steps of the group after that. So, I mean, it's, it's really exciting. I would imagine, I mean, sometimes I think it's just exciting uh, when you get to step out of your comfort zone area. So even just the notion like of going to a different church context to, to learn or gauge or help people dream. So there are times I actually find that's much easier to do as somebody who's not there to have to be um, always living into it. Like, you know, like it's far easier to organize or throw out other people's stuff than, than my own stuff, you know, like, you know, to be able to bring that back to my context and apply it is, is a little tricky, but, um, but I think it's exciting. Then you get to hear the generation of ideas for, do you find that work to be like refueling for you to like spark, you know, a, a diff, just a different way of looking at the same problems or, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I find, I find the consulting work. I don't even really know if I like the word consultant, the word consultant, you know, it yes. really, it's more like facilitation work. Um, I become the excuse for a group of people to gather and to try something out. And if they hate it and it's stupid and, you know, it ruins everything, they have a clear person to blame. It's me. Right. And it's not them. I mean, so it, it sort of lowers, it lowers, um, it, it, it lowers the threshold kind of anxiety just enough for people to, to do things. And, um, you know, uh, you know, and then I become a, 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 I also can become a kind of point of accountability so that we don't just try the thing. I mean, one thing churches do a lot is they, they try something and they never reflect on it. And if they yeah. do reflect on it, the reflection amounts to what went well, what didn't go so well, what would we do different? It's purely instrumental. And it, the reflection doesn't come back to questions of identity and vocation. Like who, what do we learn about ourselves? Yeah. What did we learn about what God might be calling us to? And it certainly doesn't come back to theology. Like, did we encounter God? Did God say anything? What might God be asking us to do as a result of this? So when you have somebody like me that shows up and says, hey, try this thing um, and come, let's come back and talk about it. Then the accountability is like, we're actually going to talk about, I don't care if it went well or not. In some ways, if it's a failure, there's more that we can learn from it. But, um, uh, but let's, let's, go to the deeper questions of identity, vocation, and God. And, and I think that's where, I mean, building those habits into a congregation, I think is really important if, if it's going to um, kind of renew its life around mission, you know. Um, so in terms of, that wasn't the question you're asking, in terms of the, my own, you know, kind of experience of it. Like, I, I, I think I'm regularly kind of awed and surprised by um, the, the deep faith um, commitment um, perseverance mm -hmm. of congregations, you know? Like, so when you kind of go up to 30,000 feet and you look at the stats, you know, I, um, I think Ed Stetzer, back in 2017, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that said the um, mainline church has 23 Easter's left, um, just based on trend lines, right? right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, now it's an exaggerated thing because of course, like once you get down to the bottom, people are gonna hang on as long as yes, they can, as as you know? Can. But but his point is, is that the decline of, um, participation in mainline churches is not fast. It's like, a, it's almost like a statistical cliff, right? Yeah. Um, and 
front, like those stats are, are, you know, you feel like you have a sense of how helpless this whole thing is, or, um, you know, or you can assume this is because churches are just not doing what God's calling them to do, or they've lost the plot or, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of assumptions you can make from yep. a distance. And then you go and you spend time with leaders and you spend time with congregations and you hear about their neighborhoods and you hear about their story and you kind of sit with them for a while while they're, you know, interviewing neighbors or they're trying a new program or they're finding a community partner to do something they've always wanted to do. And I mean, I'm just, I'm just generally, I'm often surprised and I probably shouldn't be, but, but still kind of surprised and awed by the fact that, you know, there, there is, there is faithful, good, trustworthy work being done in communities all over the country. Um, and that should be celebrated. And, um, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, we need to find new ways of telling those stories. Um, not that the statistical cliff doesn't mean like pretty possibly catastrophic things for how we organize our denominations and how we think about buildings and how we think about giving. And I mean, there's obviously some big changes that are coming towards us that we need, we shouldn't stick our head in the sand, but I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that, um, you know, people in our congregations are making meaning. Um, they're loving their neighbor. Um, they're caring for one another. Um, they're baptizing babies and they're burying yeah. loved ones. And, you know, and it's like, they're, they're still, really important valuable work that's being done at imperceptible under the surface you know that we need to celebrate and find ways of of drawing attention to and supporting um i don't know if that makes sense I, so i no, i think it, that's it, a regular thing i come back to no it makes it makes total sense and i i i do think in terms of like you know, what we could ingest on our social media feeds or in the news or whatever, so much of it can be, you know, this divisive or doom and gloom as though beautiful things don't, aren't born out of desolate, you know, there's a lot of great things that have come from really horrible ways or, or even as you were saying, like, just those celebrations of that the joy of being in each other's day-to-day -day life. Like sometimes we don't celebrate that until we've had some separation, you know, like it might be you, you haven't seen somebody for months. And so when you spend time with them, then you're like, oh, that was so great. But the day-to-day -day sort of things that happen in building those relationships, I think can't be, I think we often underestimate that power of that kind of support system you have in place. And I, I agree with you. It floors me all the time. Like, you know, I've been in my congregation for over a decade, but these guys have been together for some of them, 50, 60, 70 mm -hmm. years, you know? So, you know, we go visit each other when someone's sick or in the hospital, but the, the speed at which people uh, pick up a phone or, you know, drop off a casserole or, are like, hey, I'm going to take you to your doctor's appointment today or whatever these like, uh, you know, because they because they know like so and so's kids don't live in town or they, or they work or, um, you know, they know they don't drive anymore or whatever, like they are constantly engaging with each other and building these relationships in in their day to day work. And that absolutely is like powerful makes me want to continue to to be a part of it and, and to work with, you know, in this community and learn how to do that. I mean, it's, it's, it really is incredible. And I, I don't think it's a small thing, but you, in addition to going to these communities, you, you also have relationships with places abroad or the, you know, through the seminary or whatever, where you get to see church in a decidedly different <laughs> context or, or way of being. So do these things translate across cultural bounds? Is, is some of the, are some of the things the same or are we dealing with completely different issues? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, this might be where your listeners lose me. So, um, 
It's all right. <laughs> um, I mean, if my mom's listening, maybe I won't lose my mom. But um, <laughs> if uh, uh, I mean, I'm a pretty uh, I, I'm a I'm a I'm pretty um, committed to this idea that the that the Christian faith is um, is radically cultural in the sense that um, we can talk, you know, so you have an African theologian named Lamansane who writes about translation as a metaphor for mission and thinking about textual translation in particular, you know, so like in the same way that a text can be translated across language, the Christian faith can be translated across culture. And when mission happens well, um, there is good translation, meaning there's a, a word for God in the local dialect that is adopted. And the, the, the um, distinctive dimensions of a local culture find uh, like reframing and kind of new life in the story of Jesus. And, right. um, and where translation is done poorly, it's when there's cultural norms that are sort of, you know, like forced onto um, a, a, you know, a group of people. And, um, and I think like that's a helpful metaphor, um, but it, that metaphor still then asks for us to think about Christianity as um, as having a kind of um, a kernel or a, or a thread, you know, if we want to shift the metaphor right. that, that is acultural and sort of runs between all cultures, you know, um, and then a husk of culture that's kind of the extra. And, and I think when we talk about the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, that um, this is, um, there's not a, a husk or kernel kind of distinction but the word taking on human flesh and and um being rooted in a in the particularities of culture and life and body and things like that and the good news of the gospel is that would wherever we whatever kind of body we find ourselves in um whatever language we are speaking um wherever we are located in the globe whatever our history is that, that um, um, Jesus can be known it, from that vantage point and meets us in that, you know, place, you know. So the Pentecost being another example, that the Tower of Babel is not reversed um, where everybody comes back to a single language, but um, healed, where right. each hears the word of God in their mother tongue. So, so all that to say, I mean, I think the value of like, international partnerships that we have with the seminary and some of like my research that um like I've, i spent some time in the philippines and done some research on philippine theology of struggle which is a kind of like a liberation theology that emerged in the philippines in resistance to the marcos regime in the 70s and 80s um you know i think the value of these partnerships is not necessarily to um uh to find kind of um analogical kind of comparisons or some sort of thread through line of you know how is christianity the same how is christianity different but rather to recognize that there is a contextualized um uh wrestling with the yeah. good news of the gospel for in this culture from this vantage point and um and that, you know, we can learn something about how they're doing this and what faithfulness looks like and, um, and, and also how they see, they're often better able to see our cultural blind spots. And so, you know, if we can find shared concerns and then come together and wrestle with these shared concerns from our different vantage points, I think there's a deeper appreciation for our own faith um for, for for the challenges in our own cultural setting that can emerge you know so um you know one of the things we've done over the years is bring students from pittsburgh seminary to Silliman university in the philippines and um take and take an issue like 
um, climate change and uh, and then situate our shared conversation and experiences from very different vantage points and then even drawing from very different theological frameworks for how we might think about it. And I know our students come away enriched, but also feeling tethered to and partnered with, you know, siblings in Christ and that are on the other side of the, the world that are speaking a different language and, and thinking about this differently, but we have a kind of shared concern. So I think, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, I think that's how, um, I think that to me, that's a slightly different emphasis for, you know, um, international engagement than I think, um, at least the, at least the, it's different, at least than from the narrative that I have inherited or the rationale that I inherited. So. Well, well, it's less, well, it's, it's far less about a hierarchical relationship where, you know, you, you, the one going, gets to be somehow the savior rather than or or the chair you know or the giver of knowledge it's 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 definitely more of a partnership uh, or cross learning experience than than maybe i've heard in in the past it i i find it very interesting like you know growing up i mean ag agriculture is is in the united states but not everyone we know is a farmer but like in certain places like it's like everybody farms is Philip. I don't know enough to know, like is Philippines, one of those places like in Kenya where my husband comes from, like everybody farms, everybody has a, a garden and they're the relationship with the soil and the understanding about, um, so ways you feel blessed and, and yet, or, or cursed, like there's a whole different way of talking about it, um, and understanding it as well as, um, and I don't know if the Philippines is it has that same farmer or I don't know, maybe it's more fisherman culture, maybe it's both. Yeah, I mean the the Philippines history um is what has been one of pretty persistent colonization um since the Spanish arrived um okay. back in the 1500s. And so um the story has been has been consistently one of dispossession okay. um you know so um uh dispossessing farmers from their land um you know large tracts of land being owned by the spanish aristocracy and then later replaced by the americans and then the japanese and then the americans again and and um um and so there's there's you know pretty pretty profound inequality there um and which leads then to people kind of fleeing to the cities to find work but the cities don't have enough housing or right. all these jobs and um you know and and so there's there's kind of these kinds of cycles so i think in gen i think in general people are still probably more connected to particularly the sea you know it's a na an island nation i think set over right. seven thousand islands um and and to the land um than your average american um but that doesn't mean that like most filipinos are like living off the land farming you know that kind of thing right um it, it's a lot of industrial scale kind of crop you know around like um sugar and and, and things like that owned by wealthy landowners um with some kind of tenant farming system you know, fishing is a little bit different. You can, you have subsistence fishing villages, you know, people that live at sort of a subsistence level and they'll sell some fish on the market, but, you know, as long as they have access to the sea and fishing grounds that are not being overfished by commercial fishing enterprises, you know, they can live off of, off of the sea and, and live at a, um, you know, very, live simply, but, but, you know, um, still have a, like a, a good, you know, quality of life. Um, do those biblical stories, um, do they land better or worse in fishing communities? Or is it like, is it like watching, uh, you know, a computer hacking movie with somebody who actually knows about computers that they're like, you can't do that. Do they read those stories? And they're like, you can't just throw your nuts to the other side. That doesn't, it's just not how that works. Like, yeah. is there ever... That's a great like I've never I've never had that that specific conversation. I think what I've noticed is um 
the um the the assumption the the assumptions around family um family land um you know kind of honor these dimensions of the biblical story are just um more obvious um you know uh um not as hard to sort of stretch you know i think so much of so much of how we in the in the west read the bible is um these are story you know these are stories that might have morals that help individuals sort of get by in life and missing right. out on um the deeper social familial land land oriented stewardship kind of framed kinds of you know stories of israel and of right. the early church and and things like that but yeah that would be interesting um the the last time i was there we did spend time with a with a fishing um with villagers at a, a fishing village but we didn't really ha have time to sort of talk through how they interpret different bible stories we spent a lot, actually a lot of our time talking about how they do um community organizing um okay. to protect their fishing grounds and uh we actually had a lot to learn about you know how to do good community organizing um I mean, it's really really pretty profound um, the work that this village had done. So, I mean, those are good lessons for, I mean, I would imagine for churches in any culture or, or context to, to be able to organize, you know, a community that's, that's, that is a great skill set and asset to have. Um, and I mean, I think that is part of the work that you've done. It's certainly present, you know, in like, building on the gifts that are already in our your community in order to know like you know building on not only the needs but what are the you know what's what's present in the community to help address the needs versus um again versus like a quick easy solution to things so, so many of the things that we deal with don't have quick quick easy fixes as we as we might like them to be um but when you when I mean, you talked about capitalism being this thing and and theological wrestling. Now I'm, I'm I'm big on. I, I generally like to talk about my, my uh, theological conversations being wrestling matches. I I don't, I think it's Jacob's fault for wrestling with God in the story. I think it's his fault. But um, but I I I like the the sort of tension that's involved in that or whatever. But but sometimes it feels like I've had decade long wrestling matches with some theological concepts that I'm like, God, I'm still okay. I almost maybe I have it, but I don't know if I have it or I don't know if I understand this. And so when you look at it, because the biblical story is not, I mean, it's embedded in, uh, I mean, obviously there's money and whatever, but it's not a, it's not a system of capitalism or maybe it is, I don't know. So how do you, how do you begin to, to wrestle with that or, or have you, I know this is a lot of questions, Scott, um, or did it make you want to, because that is our current context? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think I'm interested in um, thinking about our economic system because it's so, it's such a prevalent part of modern life. And so I, I feel like if we're going to do formation, Christian formation in our churches, we need to talk about this, first of all. Second of all, I do think the gospel has economic implications. There's a, we could talk about an economics of the gospel. Um, you know, there's a, a, a theologian, Catherine Tanner, who wrote a book, Economy of Grace. And I, I won't bore you with like the theories, but she's using- like um, This stuff doesn't bore me actually, but go ahead. She's <laughs> using Pierre Bourdieu's um, uh, understanding of, of um, uh, like how capital is formed around certain um, practicing communities. And she says, you know, in the church, grace plays the same role that money does in, in economics. Ooh. And, but we often assume that grace functions like money and money functions like grace, only the two function entirely different. So money, it, 
operates in a zero sum sort of fashion. To give you money is to is for me to lose money. Whereas grace um, gains power through circulation, right? Right. Um, and um, by giving grace, you then receive grace. And and so she does this whole kind of like like very sort of philosophical sort of analysis. But what she's trying to get at is, I think, is this this kind of more profound truth that um, that our life in Christ um, is not simply a spiritual life, uh, but it's a political life and an economic life. It makes it, it make the, our life in Christ makes a difference for how we organize ourselves as a community and how we think about the um, exchange of goods. And, um, and, and so, um, but, but we, you know, but because, you know, our political lives and our economic lives kind of operate in this sphere separate from church, we're not always very good at um, doing discipleship or talking about our faith in ways that make clear connections to political organization, to economic transaction. Um, and where we do make those connections, they're often very sort of instrumentalized and um, kind of like means ends focused, right? So um, when we I was do like, what would an example money, of that be? Oh, when, we, when we talk about money, we talk about, you know, it's like, um, it's all around questions of stewardship and right. which assume like a good middle-class um you know, you give 10% of the church, you put 10% in savings, and then you live off 80%. Right. And, um, you know, you save for retirement, and you pay down your debt. And, you know, and all of those are great money management tools, but they're not thinking theologically about money, right? right. Um, or, or theologically about what it means to put money in savings and to have that money that you put in savings um, be invest, be a part of a bank's investment portfolio, which is, you know, paying for um, all kinds of things that we might yeah. not really, all, all right, that, right, right, all that kind of stuff. So we we don't think about we 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 don't think about that. Um, it and it assumes that approach to stewardship even it kind of assumes a sort of zero sum game when it comes to to economics, um, and so. Uh, so, so I want, I, I want to ask questions about that. Um, I don't think though that the Bible gives us, I have to teach a class on this at the seminary. Um, and I, I have students that come in, I think what they're hoping for is that we're going to turn to the Bible and decide which economic system the Bible supports. Is, is best. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it's either like, you know, Jesus is on team Mark's or uh, team Adam Smith, and you know we're right. gonna cheer for one, but we can't cheer for both. And right. and I, you know, I, I'm just I'm actually just not even interested in that question because I I don't think um, uh, I, I don't I think we'd have to do violence to the scriptures to like uh, you know to to say that it absolutely defends this sort of one system. Right. And, and if we and if we did want to make that case, I mean we would we would be having every seven years a sabbatical year and every 49 years we wouldn't be doing loans we would right. you know it would be so massively different um that uh you know i'm like this is going to sound really pragmatic i just don't it's just probably not workable right right um it, unless we could suddenly seize control of the u.s government and then all global banking and you know you know, what, you, no, now you're, I mean, you're reminding me of the movie and book uh, Fight Club, right? Where they just like, they just blow up the buildings, right? Yeah. It's all, it's all gone. You just yeah. etch a sketch the whole economic system and everybody's suddenly debt free and we're just starting all over again. Right. And I think what we know, what we know about big, big, like revolutionary system change is oftentimes like historically when there's economic and political revolutions, there's a lot of people that get harmed in the way because people are just, we're just not smart enough, even when our intentions are good to, you know, like fix all the problems. We fix certain problems and then create new ones. You know, so I think like somebody smarter than me, somebody that understands 
economy, you know, economics better than me, maybe can come up with an alternative system or whatever. But I, I think what we're, what I'm interested in is thinking about how we are being formed by our engagement in the economy, our engagement in the larger sort of political economy of the United States. Um, and, and then thinking about what kinds of practices, habits, framings do we inherit from um, our Christian tradition that can help us cultivate new kind of a new economic imagination practices that might help build in us virtues um, that are um, if not if not um, anti-capitalist at the very least um, egalitarian um, and generous um, and uh, you know and that and to recognize that this is part of our vocation as Christians, this is part of what it means to bear witness to the gospel. You know, could we be a community of grace and th to express that grace in, in not just like spiritual terms or theological terms, but economic and political terms? And I think that's in the end what I'm interested in. Wow. I, I mean, there there's there's a lot of richness there. I, I, I agree with you. It's a lot. It's far beyond, you know, was Jesus... Well, you see that sometimes I've seen that on shirts like Jesus was a socialist. And I'm like, I don't know that. I don't know that those economic systems are present in the Bible, but I I get like the sentiment behind it, I guess, is like this. I, you know, this idea that there were Jesus definitely spoke to the economy of his day and brought forth some questions to be like, is this OK? And and they they tended in in my reading, I guess they tended to be around things more like, think about this: is this really equitable for this person? Is this fair for this person? Does does doing this perpetuate or or lift up God and God's people, or does it hurt God and God's people? Mm -hmm. um, does it does it you know does it continue to you know is it just going in your day to day living and not asking questions so you're you you're then just going to go with whomever's in charge as like the default setting of your society or is it okay to ask questions about the the agreed upon you know yeah. coinage or usage or whatever and and i i think jesus does a lot of that and i think you're right i think i mean i i don't feel we often as churches sit down and even and maybe some churches do this but to go okay where where have we invested our money if if we have investments are they are they in i mean this is there are definitely people in the PCUSA denomination that i'm a part of who ask that of questions of like should we be investing our money in fossil fuels should we be fossil free should mm -hmm. we be investing money in places where there are oppressive regi regimes in charge and and what does that mean if we do because that's where the money is right we know we'll earn more money in military based stocks or whatever. Um, mm. I actually know zero about the economy. I let other people take care of that almost <laughs> entirely. I, mean, um, I would I would say this if I would if I would push towards a more systemic approach, um, I, I think I would want to borrow something from um, from the Philippine theology of struggle. Um, which is basically this commitment that um, uh, that where you are located matters for the theology that you're doing. And so, you know, coming from liberation theology, some of these insights, you know, God's preferential option for the poor, um, that, um, you know, God is not um, ambivalent about, um, systemic um inequalities yes. and injustices and god's very vocal about them yeah and so um you know we can't really do this consideration this, this kind of economic reconfiguring and new imagination if we are doing it from a place that is opposed to against not in alignment with the interests of those that are uh, suffering in our in the under our current system. You know, there's a, there's a 
uh, Eliezer Fernandez is a um, Filipino theologian who says, you know, the poor, uh, you know, we've, uh, gosh, I can't remember how the quote starts, but the idea is that we, we don't, um, we don't take the side of the poor because the poor have the truth, but rather that the poor are the truth vis-a-vis -vis the system's lie. And right. so I, you know, I think if there's a, if there's like a start, a systemic sort of starting point for this kind of reflection, it is to recognize that whatever the gifts of benefits of capitalism might be in raising so many people out of poverty, there's there's still systemic exploitation, yeah. And um, and I think that's the place we start, and and I think that's really inconsistent. That or that's very consistent, not inconsistent. Inconsistent right. inconsistency. Anyway, it's very consistent yes. with yes. Um, Got it the, the um, way we see Jesus going about these questions too. Yeah, I know. I, I do think I do. I mean, I, I sometimes, um, you know, there are times where I feel like you engage in conversations and people say things like, well, so-and-so is thinking about this too much or whatever. And I think, but the God I follow was a deep thinker. Like, it's not like he was flippant about you know systems that he encountered i mean he was very very intentional about i mean he didn't just go oh i just healed today oh is today the sabbath no he was like today's the sabbath so okay right. you know but in that process and in those stories sometimes pointed out the hypocrisy of the ways that you know you you might uh, go along with the system when it when it's beneficial to this people, but how that same system that's beneficial to like this people, even if it's a majority, is oppressive to this person here. And why should they need to suffer one day longer if if they if if they can be healed right here in in this moment? Why would you? Why would they? You want them to be suffering? And so, you know, I think sometimes with our economies, we talk about it in levels of worth and what someone has earned, like those sort of privileges versus, um, you know, as though they're poor as punishment for whatever. And uh, I think there are a lot of theological problems if that's the way that we're having, you know, if that's how the discussion is organized, I think that would get into, you know, a, a big you know, a theological reckoning or, or whatever. But I, I think you say some very interesting things about, again, about just thinking about the monies and how we use it instead of how I think many of us live as in, we just go through our, our days doing the formula that we've been given, which is like what five, tw 50, 20, 30, or whatever that yeah. 10 is, you know, like whatever that, that thing is that it always adds up to like 120 percent yeah you don't have that much but like we we had to have real conversations right when 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 we became when i became a, when i got married and we became a family and then decided to have children and all of that to go okay based on what it is our values based on the things that are important to us, how then are we going to invest our, not just our monies, like our economic monies, but our, our time, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, cause I, I do think it's broader than just the money basis. And, you know, we went, yeah, we're not going to be able to save money for college. So we're going to have to really emphasize good grades because we can't do, you can't like be a cross-cultural family and, and save for your retirement and save for your kids school mm -hmm. um so you know you have to make some really choices but you also have to be um i i think transparent in why you've made that decision because sometimes it's like it's not that we don't have the money it's we're not that is not where we want to invest it yeah but see like this is a great example of asking questions about the system so the way that you're talking about this is it isn't these are there's these huge financial burdens that are placed on you as as an individual sort of family unit yeah um 
and and to recognize that that is um you know that is by design where the you know kind of contemporary capitalism at least um tends to um socialize risk and privatize reward right mm. so things like when you buy a home um you know that's a big risk um that that you're that you're taking but there's um that's uh um there's all kinds of public supports available to kind of buoy the housing market and you know and obviously that bubbles happen and then there are times right. when risk becomes privatized too like in 2008 you know but you get a tax break on it um there's all kinds of ways that um as a government as a society we invest money in and share and sort of share the risk of like propping up this housing market right um now we do that so that individuals can get really wealthy on you taking out a home loan right so the rewards for the system go to the individuals. And if you stay in the home long enough and you happen to live in a market that has growing values, you know, you can pull some money out of it. But, you know, that, that is, um, you know, that is less, uh, um, uh, th that's more an accident of the system than sort of by design. You know, I keep, my parents keep telling me that we're going to build wealth through our home that we own. And, you know, we, um, we bought first right before the housing crash and, um, never got that money out and, nope. <laughs> and we're capped in a, you know, we're capped in a duplex, which just has a ceiling. It's just not going to rise much more than, and we bought at a high point in the market where it's not going to rise much more, you know? So it's like, um, it, you know, had we lived in a different market, bought at a different time, you know, it could have been different. All, all that to right. say, you know, um, rewards are privatized, risks are, are socialized. Um, and, um, and if you're in the sort of lower 80% of, of income earners, you know, that, that, um, there's very little reward available to you, but you get to pay into the, so, you know, support the risky behavior of others. And, um, you know, and I, so I think like, so college, yeah. um, you know, there's again, um, public money that maybe could support with that. There's ways we could socialize um, education. Um, um, instead, we've, you know, we just increasingly privatize higher education, even though that is the ticket, as we all know, to more financial security. Right. And, um, you know, and again, there's, there's, there is help out there and stuff like that. But if you fall into certain income brackets, there's really, you know, it's really on you individually. Um, and then same with retirement. And, and so I think, um, you know, the retirement system, you are putting money into the stock market. Hopefully you're going to be able to pull money out and live off that. But in the meantime, um, the real money to be made in the stock market is taking money from people like you right. and then making a series of side bets on what's happening in the stock market through derivative products and other kinds of things where, you know, thousands and millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars can be made, you know, on an ongoing basis while you're sort of, you're sort of stabilizing by kind of keeping your money in the market. And, um, and I, and I think like, um, you know, our churches assume our starting place is that each person is an individual economic actor responsible mm. for their own economic well-being bearing all of these risks on them by themselves and then if they strike it rich and get rewarded that they get those rewards themselves and um i think we i, I think we can be more creative than that um you know i think especially as pastoral ministry starts to become more um bivocational yeah we might have to think about what it means for us as communities to ensure that you know, one another can make a living. And um, I'm not sure I know what that looks like, um, but I think these are the questions that we should be asking. I don't know why we have to assume that this is only the only way things can work. So, so I mean, we're, we're, we're getting on the hour and I do have my last question, which I, I know already you will loathe, but, um, uh, you know, I, I remember sitting in, 
math class in high school and learning about imaginary numbers. And I like had an existential crisis in the middle of the classroom. I was like, what do you mean? They're numbers that are just made up. I, I get like for people who do math, I know there's a formula. I know, but the number changes and it just, it blew my mind that we had imaginary numbers. And what it did for me is exactly sort of what you were talking about right there is I was like, if we're just making it all up, even if it's on a great formula, like even if there's an algorithm for it, but it's still made up. Like, why would we make up systems that intentionally hurt people versus creating systems that are going to like empower people? And and just over and over and over again, I see myself included, like push comes to shove. There have definitely been moments where it's like, you know, it's not as though I'm, I've been above asking the question of like, well, I got this or I want to keep my benefits, right? Without recognizing that then I should be advocating for everybody to have these benefits, right? If we if we want, like if I want my maternity leave, then I should be at helping other people also get their maternity leave to realize that that's just beneficial for a whole lot of people, not just for people who, you know, can can afford it or or whatever the case may be so i think you're asking really good questions i will say that's a wrestling match where i i mean that's i've been thinking about that since what high school i still don't have any <laughs> answers about it except to still say i think it's made up i think we make up a lot of systems and then if we mm -hmm. do it long enough people believe that it's true mm -hmm. yeah um I mean, that's the big, like, aha moment of adulthood, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz and the curtain gets pulled back and you're like, oh my goodness, nobody knows anything and everybody's just making stuff up all the time. Yes, making it up. Yeah, yeah. There, there are. I mean, I say that I, I don't, I think I stopped in many ways. I still feel like, like a teenage girl. Like, yeah. there are times I've looked around the room going, who's the adult that's, oh, I have yeah. to be the adult to fix this thing or or to address this thing or to tell those kids to stop doing that or whatever. And I, I don't always relish that. Um, but this brings us to the final question, uh, which I already informed you that you're probably not going to love is is about. And now I, I it was in your classroom, though, in all honesty, it was in your classroom that this question develops for me because you made us read material where I felt like well that just sounds like we're all a bunch of care bears and it was like a care bear theology sort of moment mm -hmm. that came about and that was in your classroom so you're really to blame for this Scott but so if you were if you were a care bear and what color care bear would you be and what is the emblem like your core core Scott character that would be uh symbolized on your belly Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about Care Bears. This is that's as much as you need to know is that they're colorful bears. Well, that one that's winking at me on your yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one. Oh boy. No um, I don't know. I I uh I'm I'm not one for like big, you know, um public displays of anything. So <laughs> You know, I would be a muted color. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'd, I'd probably have uh, as a symbol. Um, hmm. I'm trying something that would be like contrarian because my gut instinct is as soon as everybody likes something, there must be something wrong with it. <laughs> um you know yeah yeah I, i'd have to think about what what could symbolize that like entirely i mean yeah i Just, mean you're probably like me you, the notion that i would be called a hipster bothers me and yet there are many things about that life that i'm like okay yeah, yeah. i play the ukulele and eat yeah. fair, you know drink fair trade chocolate or drink eat fair trade chocolate and all that kind of stuff too, i guess mm -hmm. yeah 
No, it's, yeah. it's probably a little bit of that like Gen X, you know, yeah. like it's hard to, hard to, hard to escape that. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're at the tail end of the Gen X, right? But but yeah. it's still, it's a dominant uh, personality. So I understand that, you know, I, I'm like, man, it might even just be that. I Like your Care Bear now for me is muted and has a leather jacket or something. I don't know, but can't because that's too, too flashy. Yeah, yeah, that's too flashy. <laughs> that's yeah. too much. Um Anyway, thank you for this time and for carving time out to uh, to chat with me and to to and I I don't I I think it's very valuable for people to hear the conversations and struggles versus and even questions versus saying like here's here's the answer on this very you know salt you know just apply X Y Z and all will be fixed I think there's a lot of power in going yeah sometimes just sitting in the muck is yeah. what we need to do as people yeah well it's great to be with you Leah yes thank you all right thanks for the invite take care you too